Welcome back to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. This episode is the last in our five-part series on the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 3. In the first episode, we looked at an overview of the story told in these three chapters, but we also mapped out the way we were going to approach this. We said we plan to read these chapters in their original context. Exactly. How would an original reader hear these stories? What questions matter to them? And what would they understand these stories to communicate? Well, chapters one and two were the creation stories. The first story, chapter one, was the forming and the filling of all creation. The second story, chapter two, was the story on the ground with a special focus on the creation of human beings. Chapter three is where everything went wrong, the fall. Mm. It describes how humans chose to disobey God and the consequences of that. In this episode, we pick up where we left off. We'll discuss the last few verses of chapter three as the consequences of human rebellion in the Garden of Eden continue to play out. Then we'll step back and review the ground we've covered. Let's jump right in. In the last episode, we saw how Genesis 3 narrated the choice the man and the woman made in the garden. As a result of that choice, they found themselves outside of the relationship with God that God had created them for. That was because they violated God's order in creation. As a result, they had to live in the resulting disorder. It's worth saying here that neither the woman nor the man was tricked. They cannot argue that their sin was not deliberate. <laughs> Which, of course, is exactly what they tried to do. <laughs> yes. Eve told God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She may have been deceived in the sense that the serpent lied to her and led her the wrong way, but she had no reason to distrust God, and she had the ability to go on trusting him. And the man does something similar. <laughs> it's kind of funny how they both try the same tactic. <laughs> he suggests he only ate because the woman gave the fruit to him. But in the rest of chapter 3, it's plain that God holds all three, the serpent, the woman, and the man, fully responsible for what has happened. Well, at the end of chapter two, we were told that in the garden, the man and the woman felt no shame. And John, you made the point then that they had nothing to hide. Now they do. Right. Now they have shame. They first tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Now, at the end of chapter three, God improves on their human effort to cover themselves by actually clothing them with animal skins. Of course, that required animals to die, mm. to be sacrificed for that purpose. But through that death, God covered their shame. Now, this seems to be a gracious provision for the man and the woman, if you ask me. We don't want to drive this verse too hard, but there are some theological ideas beginning to develop here. Fair enough. It's hard to miss, though, that not only does human sin involve life and death, that sin extends beyond us and into the world around us. In any case, the end of the chapter focuses on how God prevents humans from living the extended life God originally intended. Correct. God acknowledges to his heavenly counsel that humans have grasped for and taken for themselves the divine prerogative of defining good and evil. This can only be disastrous, and so we see it every day, don't we? Yeah. Living in such a state, outside of the relationship with God that humans were intended to have, that is not life. They could not go on perpetually in such a state. So God removes them from the garden specifically to prevent their access to the tree of life. Okay. After eating from the forbidden tree, they gave up life. 
God had said as much in chapter 2 when he said, when you eat of it, you will surely die. Right. Adam and Eve can't have it both ways. Well, at this point, it seems the garden is guarded by heavenly beings and what the text calls a flaming sword flashing back and forth. You know, that could be a reference to lightning. Okay. It wouldn't surprise us at all to hear a phenomenon like lightning described in that way, a flaming sword flashing back and forth. But in any case, the result is no more eternal life and no way of finding our own way back to it. However, as we pointed out in the last episode, there was hope. The man and woman would not get to live the life in relationship with God that was offered to them in the garden. They lost the eternal life they originally had, but God's plan for creation would not be defeated. True. However, carrying out those purposes would be impossible if the human race came to an end. Right. Since Adam and Eve could not live forever, the only apparent way for the plan to go on would be through childbirth. That is, through future generations of image bearers. In the midst of death, life would still go on, mm-hmm. and the image of God would remain in creation, albeit distorted by human sin. The human race survives, but it's disordered and in need of restoration. At the end of chapter three, there does seem to be a resigned, bittersweet faith as mm. Adam and Eve look ahead toward the survival of humanity in spite of the results of their sin and the state of the world in which they now must live. It's easy for us as Christians to look straight to the New Testament. But John, I've heard you make the point that the story of God's redemptive work is exactly what follows in the rest of Genesis. Yes, God accomplishes God's purposes in spite of humanity's failures. From Noah to Abraham to Joseph, the story of Scripture is the story of God setting right what we humans mess up. Okay. And it begins right here in Genesis. It's not always easy to see because in the story, things in creation go from bad to worse. Mm-hmm. But that just shows us the otherwise hopeless condition of humankind and our utter helplessness to solve our own sin problem. It would take God's intervention and the story from the garden to after the Tower of Babel when we meet Abraham lays that fact out as plainly as it can be. Now that we've worked through this chapter, albeit briefly. Yeah, right. I just want the listeners to note that we spent five episodes on three chapters of the Bible, and John says we've been brief. (laughs) Hey, I've got one thing to say. Uh Uh-huh. Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Three chapters and six episodes, and there was still much more to say there. Well, let's take a minute to emphasize a couple of theological points. Ron, at the beginning of the series, we said I'd be the Old Testament guy and you'd be the theologian. Uh Uh, I'm counting on you here. (laughs) Now now that we've attempted to let these chapters speak on their own terms and in their own voices. You know, let's start with that, the way we approach these chapters. We tried to listen carefully to what these texts had to say to the readers that first received them. And John, that's your expertise. That's what you studied. Listeners may not notice the difference, but my own graduate work was on a much later time. It was a time when Greek and Roman sensibilities ruled the world and the descendants of ancient Israel were trying to find their place in that world uh, with great difficulty, I might add. Mm. That perspective does not help me to make sense of these first chapters of Genesis about the only thing my training does is to alert me to just how alien aspects of those original stories in Genesis are. 
it's it's hard to do when you decide you're not going to allow modern demands and standards to intrude on these stories. Those modern demands are as foreign to these stories as the stories are to our modern demands. Mm. But in, unless we do that, unless we let these stories speak on their own terms, we'll just end up reading into them what we want to hear or what someone else told us that we were supposed <laughs> to hear. Right. In the very least, we're likely to miss the most important things these stories are trying to say. Yeah, we've said the most important things are that God created us, we have a special relationship with God, and because of our sin, we disrupted that relationship. The result was that we now live in a world ridden with evil and disorder. I think some listeners now may be struggling with a vague sense of unease, though, or, or maybe it's not so vague. I'd like to articulate some of what might be bothering them here. Okay. We've argued that you see the main point of the story most clearly when you read it in its original context. Right. So with Genesis 1, for instance, read in context, it tells us God formed the universe and filled it. The chronology it gives is a literary framework to express that forming and filling. Right there. I can see certain listeners getting very uneasy right there. Is reading in the original context an easy way for scholars or those who claim to be scholars or anyone else for that matter <laughs> to drain the strength from any number of passages in Scripture? I bet you're thinking about people who would say things like, that was true in their cultural context, but we have to adapt that to our own. Yeah, sadly, does reading in the original context ultimately drain Scripture of all power we thought it had? No, definitely not. Again, we're just doing this to make sure we hear what Scripture wants to say and not what we wanted to say. But maybe we should work a few examples just to illustrate what we're really trying to say here. Yeah, let's start with the big one, one we've already discussed, but the one that may weigh most heavily on people. John, you mentioned how ancient Hebrew authors were effectively demythologizing ancient creation stories by turning them into stories about the creative work of Yahweh. Right. They took well-known pagan accounts of creation and rewrote them with God at the center. The effect was dramatic. For instance, the Hebrew writers were insisting that God created things that others tended to worship as gods, such as the sun and the moon. Well, as I mentioned in our opening episode, certain scholars have tried to argue that something similar happens in the story of Jesus' resurrection. There are all kinds of stories about gods or heroes going to the underworld and returning victorious. How is the story of Jesus' resurrection any different? <laughs> I may be the Old Testament guy, but I spend a lot of time with the New Testament too, and <laughs> that just doesn't ring true. No, it doesn't. This is where I argue that if we do with the New Testament documents what we just did with Genesis, if we read them in their original context, we find something truly remarkable. Those early Christians tried to say as clearly as they could that they saw this person, Jesus, die, and then they saw him alive. Reading in the original context is not the problem. Mm -hmm. Reading to get what you want out of the text is. And Ron, from what I know of the particular example you're citing, there were modern scholars who really wanted the text not to narrate anything miraculous. That's exactly right. There is another recent scholar, N.T. Wright, who has a massive volume out on the resurrection, 735 pages, I think. <laughs> he covers all kinds of stories that some have argued are similar to resurrection. In the end, he insists that the Christian story of Jesus' resurrection is at once similar to one ancient precedent and at the same time completely unique. It's similar to developing specifically Jewish notions of resurrection. On that count, it has a precedent. 
It's completely dissimilar, though, because the Christians claimed they had just seen it happen. That was unprecedented. Hmm. Well, we spent a lot of time with the resurrection before. Yeah. Uh, I suspect, though, that this isn't the only place where someone might use, quote, reading in context to deprive Scripture of its power. We've seen this done with arguments about what Scripture tells us is acceptable human behavior, too. Yeah, this is something you and I have direct interaction with, John. At what point is something Scripture says culturally relative, and at what point is it as true now as it was then? I don't think this is entirely new to us. The book of Acts is pretty clear about this. The early Christians struggled with questions about how the ancient law of Israel did and did not apply to their lives. We get the impression that it was even a major source of division there. True. At the same time, John, I think you and I agree there are some fairly timeless statements about what God intends humans to be here in Scripture. For example, we get the beginning of a strong foundation here in the first three chapters of Genesis concerning human relationships and specifically marriage. God defined that relationship, and it's a fundamental part of creation. True. It's not fully developed at that point, but that comes quickly in the books that follow Genesis in the Pentateuch, which is the group of the first five books of the Bible. But yes, we are starting to see that foundation here. Well, I can say from the perspective of the New Testament authors that they were struggling with Greek and Roman standards that challenged these perspectives. The Greco-Roman world looked a lot more like what our world is currently turning into. It had room for just about anything. Jewish and Christian authors were routinely struggling to assert what they considered God's expectations for us. They were doing this against those other standards that contradicted God's created order. When Paul says things that we don't like about how we should live, then (laughs) we don't always have the luxury of writing that off as culturally relative. If we do that, we're only pretending to read in context, and we're abusing that to, once again, get Scripture to say what we want it to say. Hmm. To say that we start our reading of a text with its native literary and cultural context in the foreground is a move to listen to the text rather than to tell it what it says. Yeah, and that's what we've been saying all along. Right, but we must continue to listen to what it says as we consider (laughs) its application to our own setting. That means we don't leave the ancient context behind entirely as an excuse for rereading it today in whatever way we like, ceasing to listen to it as it was intended in favor of merely returning to tell it what it must say to us today. That doesn't mean that nothing in Scripture is culturally conditioned, but we have to read it in its own context first, or we don't have enough to go on even to begin to make that determination. Again, if we don't start there, then we're simply creating a Bible of convenience to suit whatever it is that we want permission to do. I'd like to come back one more time to this question of why some listeners may be uncomfortable with where we arrived by reading this story in context. John, when we did our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we wrapped up with Jesus' words about building a house. Yes, the house has to be on the right foundation. I can see how someone might be concerned that we've shaken or even destroyed the foundation (laughs) here. That's not what we've done, I promise. (laughs) But, (laughs) But yes, I can see how this would make some people uneasy. For instance, when we insist the chronology in chapter one is not the primary point. The one who makes creation happen is the point. You know, at one level, though, I think they're right. 
to worry about a shaken foundation. There is a foundation here, but we have to be very, very clear about what that foundation is. I can give a specific example of someone ripping the heart out of this story and leaving it powerless. Okay, rip away. (laughs) (laughs) I've mentioned it before. I had a seminary professor who seemingly with glee announced that what we know about the development of the human species destroys what people have taken from this story. And the words of this professor, no Adam, no fall, no fall, no original sin. Hmm. Then why do we even need the work God accomplishes in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Bingo. It absolutely eviscerates what the gospel is trying to tell us. Mm. But in stripping the Genesis story of its power, it also strips it of the things it says about us as humans that are true. Ah, the effects of our fallen condition seem to be fairly evident. Everywhere we turn, we can see humans at war with other humans and at war with the world God presumably created for their own good. Exactly. As you describe what this story tells us in its original context, God created the world around us and God created us with a special place in it. We separated ourselves from God because of our rebellion. That is a profoundly important observation about the reality we live with. That is the foundation. That is what we cannot lose from this story in Genesis. People are right to worry about that foundation being shaken. But when we read it in context, as you have here, that foundation is precisely what emerges. I would want to add that God finds a way to redeem the situation too. We only get hints of that in these first three chapters, but it is the rest of the story that Genesis tells and that the rest of scripture tells as well. As we conclude this series, Ron, I want to come back to something we've talked about before. Sometimes very specific interpretations of these three chapters are used as sort of tests for orthodoxy. You mean someone has to affirm this or that about the creation story in order to pass the test and be admitted into a community of Christians? Right. If you don't take their specific interpretation, you are not welcome in those circles. The problem is that very often those litmus tests are put in the wrong places. Mm. We're asked to affirm things the text doesn't even speak to. We're asked to say that the texts speak to things that its own original readers, in whose culture and language the text was actually written, would never recognize as being in the purview of the story. The foreign intrusions that we heap onto a story actually become so important that they eclipse the story itself and become human-made gates with human gatekeepers. Well, as we were just saying, the impulse to protect something vitally important in this story is certainly understandable. There absolutely is something crucial to the story Jews and Christians would ultimately tell that must not be lost here. True. The intent is often not malicious, but if you claim scripture as your standard, you should be clear you've understood exactly what scripture was saying. John, the ancient church had a way of summarizing what it considered most essential about Scripture. It was the creedal material or baptismal formulas. It's interesting to me that the creedal summary regarding creation is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Full stop. Hmm. What matters most about this story? If it exists, God made it. Yeah, God made it. God made it good. God gave us as humans a special position in that creation, and we humans messed it up. God is going to set it straight. That's the story we have to tell, and it starts here in the first three chapters of Genesis. 
And that's where we have to wrap it up for this episode and this series. Mm. In the next episode, we expect to turn our attention to the story about the temptation of Jesus. Yes, that story cropped up in our discussion here. Ron, you suggested that might be read as a rerun of Genesis 3. Yes. Satan tempts Jesus, and this time humanity does not fail. Let's go see if you were right about that. (laughs) All right. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please do see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening. 